1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be looking at the entire passage, but we'll kind of just pick and choose which verses. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. Grab one of those, and if you're going to use that, turn to page 243. 243 of, your, of the church Bibles, and we've kind of taken a pause because of Advent, right? We had Advent and this Christmas season, and so we haven't been back at 1 Samuel since November. It's been six or seven weeks, and just to kind of get us caught up to where we are going to read this morning, let me just give you a brief overview as we jump into chapter 20. The people of God have wanted a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God relents and he gives them a king, Saul. But over time, and we saw that in chapter 8 and, going, and moving forward, Saul fails as their king. He's rebellious, he's disobedient, he does not follow God's word. And so because of his rebellion, his persistent rebellion, what happens? In chapter 16, God chooses a man after God's own heart. Someone who reflects who God is in his character. And it's a little shepherd boy, the youngest in Jesse's children, David, who becomes king. He's anointed, but he is yet to grow to be anointed as the king. And he finds himself, David does, in Saul's court. Why? Because not only is he a great harp player that soothes Saul's soul when he gets really agitated and angry and violent, but he's also a great warrior we find out to be, right? He fights Goliath. He fights in the victories or in the battles for King Saul. And in so doing, he becomes, David becomes good friends with Jonathan. And when we left off in November, Jonathan and David create this beautiful covenant friendship. This covenant actually structures their entire relationship. And we looked at that uh, two months ago. But he also, David, marries one of Saul's daughters, Michael. And Saul, during this process, gets angrier and angrier and more jealous and envious of David. Because David's winning battles. David's becoming more popular in Israel. And so Saul schemes to kill David. And he does it like very carefully. He puts him out in the front lines of the battles against the Philistines so that he might fail and die. But does he? No. He continues to succeed. And we're not going to look at chapter 19 today. We're actually going to skip over that and go straight to 20. But in 19, Saul makes it clear now, explicitly clear, that he wants to kill David. And so no longer is it just like scheming, but he just wants to go kill him. And in chapter 19, seven times Saul wants to kill David. Seven times he tries to kill him. And seven times God is faithful in protecting David, his chosen and anointed king. And it's in that process David flees, and now he circles back with his best friend, Jonathan. And that's what we're going to pick up here in verse 1. So follow along here on two, page 243 or verse 1 of chapter 20. And let's read what happens in the process of Saul trying to kill David. Jonathan and David come up with a plan. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? 
What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may, I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked, me, asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice for, there, for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is any guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Verse 12, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord and the God of Israel be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And, I, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now skip with me. What happens in the preceding verses is that they come up with a scheme that to find out whether Saul actually misses David and not being at the New Moon Festival or if he's angry. If he's not angry, then David will come back to the court of, David, of Saul. But if Saul is angry and wants to kill David, then that will be clear and Jonathan will make it known to David and David must flee for his own life and for his own safety. And in so doing, what Jonathan does is he talks about it with his dad. And his dad is angry that David is missing from the New Moon Festival. And so in that, David, Saul, King Saul gets so angry at his own son. Because he knows he's aligned himself with David. That he takes a spear, the same spear that he tried to kill David with, and he throws it at Jonathan. And he misses him, fortunately. And in so doing, it made it clear to Jonathan that David was going to be killed by his dad. So he makes it known to David, and they meet out in the field. And so follow along with the verse 35 of chapter 20. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. 
As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And that was the signal for David hiding in the field that Saul was out to get him. So that was kind of the code. Saul is angry and he's going to murder you. So verse 38, And Jonathan called out after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for these stories that are not only just grip us, and touch upon our emotions. But Lord, they transform us and make us more like you. And so Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning. Open up our eyes so that we might see. and Give us ears to hear so that Lord, we might not only become like you, but be a blessing to those around us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to these verses or this chapter what we find significant here is that as i said earlier saul wants to destroy and murder david now imagine will you what david must think what david must feel knowing that he is god's anointed to be the next king nothing because of anything he's done but because god has chosen him and yet the king of Israel wants to murder and kill him. What is he thinking? What is he feeling? We don't have to actually imagine because we're actually given David's words and his thoughts as he talks and wrestles with this with his friend Jonathan. What does he ask? He says, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? There is but a step between me and death. In other words, what Jonathan or what David is saying is that he's asking this question, why? I have done everything right. I have fought Saul's battles. I've played for him in his courtyards to soothe his soul. I've done everything right for this king. I've honored him to the best that I can. And yet, why does he want to kill me? You ever feel that? You ever feel like you've done everything right and yet nothing is going right? Everything is going wrong. As as our elder Brian was praying for this COVID and this pandemic and this Omicron Omicron variant, one of the things that I've been hearing more and more from people is, I've done everything right, right? We've followed the CDC guidelines and yet why do I have COVID? Why does my spouse have COVID? Why do my children have COVID? Why is it just spreading like wildfire and I can't go back to the normalcy that we thought was coming very soon? 
For others, it might be the fact that you've been faithful as a follower of Jesus in your workplace. You've loved your coworkers, you've loved your boss, you've honored your boss even, and yet you are on the threshold of losing your job. Or maybe you have lost your job, and the finances are overwhelming to think about how do I find another job in the midst of this pandemic? My dad asked that question a year ago. If you've been following with us or if you've been here at this church, last year my dad had an aneurysm and he was in the ICU for two months. And the question that he, after he came out of it was, why? I've eaten so healthy over the last 20, 30 years. I've exercised every day for an hour or two hours. And yet I found myself nearly at the verge of death for two months. Why? Even yesterday, as we looked at deconstruction, when we gathered together, some of us, I was reminded that in the midst of deconstruction, one of the things that has brought that about is some of the own experiences that we've had, right? In the church, whether it's leadership failure, moral failure, or you've been taught growing up in, in the church since youth group or whatnot, that if you stay faithful sexually in your ethics, if you try to follow and only date a believer, and you do all these things right, then I will have this amazing marriage. And yet, there's some of us who wrestle with the fact that I've done everything right, and yet I'm still single for, as a 40-year-old, 50-year-old. Why? Why, after having done everything right, I am still experiencing suffering and uncertainty in my life? This is the question David is asking. Why? Why is Saul wanting to destroy me? I am but a step from death, even though I have honored him and loved him and been faithful in following God. Well, God answers him and God speaks to him in a very unexpected way. It's not by killing off Saul. It's not by bringing disease upon Saul. It's not by the circumstances changing. But do you know how David receives the balm that he needs and the comfort he needs? It's friendship. Friendship. Jonathan is the answer for his question. It is this kind of long, committed, faithful friendship that God gives to David in a time of uncertainty and suffering and doubt. Friendship is what God gives him. And that might be jarring for some of us. That might be confusing for some of us to go, why that? When this is a question David is wrestling with, this is his plight this is what God gives to him, a friend. And I think we find this jarring and surprising because we find friendship to be so casual, right? Friends is someone you go out to the bar with. Friends is someone you play maybe a game with or watch a game, a sporting event with. Maybe it's uh, someone that you read a book with or you join a book club. You go running together. That is what a friend is, but it's so, so much more. Feel like we are so impoverished and we have such such a superficial understanding and even experience in what friendship really looks like when we look at Jonathan and David here in this story you've heard this statistic before but in 2018 in a Pew survey it found that one-fifth of Americans reported either being lonely 
or often being lonely. Now, being alone doesn't, uh, doesn't pretend to loneliness, nor does having a spouse or a significant other. But what we see is whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have a significant other, we find that one-fifth of people find themselves lonely. This has become the public health crisis in our nation. In another study by Pew Research, it found that 42% of American adults don't live with a spouse or partner. Now, I'm guessing that number is probably a little higher in places like New York or Chicago. Maybe a slightly lower here, but there are many people who live alone. And loneliness is something that we find ourselves experiencing often. And here what, we, what I want to argue is that friendship, true, deep, committed, faithful friendships is the answer to our loneliness and to the questions and the struggles that we experience. And that's what he's given. When David is threatened, he's given a friend. I love how at the end of this chapter, we read that the Lord shall be between me and you forever. That is the kind of friendship that describes David and Jonathan. Now, I just want to briefly look at what does that kind of friendship look like? When we find ourselves in places like that, where we are experiencing hardship, why is a friend so important? Well, three things that I want to touch upon when we talk about friendship. First, it is marked by affection. It's marked by affection. In chapter 18, when we looked at that in November, listen to how their, their friendship is described. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then here in this chapter that we read in verse 17, it reads, And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And then when they know that they will never see one another again and David has to flee, what do we see? Do we see this description of them embracing, of kissing, and of being able to weep together, David weeping more? Now for some of us, that makes us feel uncomfortable. Maybe for some of us, we think that there's some kind of immoral relationship. But May I suggest actually here in this relationship, the reason we might feel so uncomfortable with this is because we have such impoverished friendships. Our friendships are so shallow and superficial that we don't know this kind of affection and love that can be experienced with another friend. And I'm not talking about spouses. You know, all too often I hear that my spouse is my best friend. But what does it actually look like to have a friend? A friend that is marked by affection. When I went to Korea, I don't know, I was about 21 years old to go visit extended family. My uncle came to pick me up. And you know what he did as we walked down the city of Seoul? I'm 21. He must be, he was probably like in his 50s or 60s. He grabbed my hand. And we walked down the public streets of Seoul holding hands together. And because I couldn't disrespect him, I couldn't pull my hand away, I literally had to just walk with him, with my hand in his. And it was so uncomfortable. As a grown man, 21-year-old, holding another man, even my uncle's hands, walking down a public street in Seoul. That for men, the only place we can actually experience any kind of affection is where? In sports. Where we can weep, we can hug. 
or in war and in battle. This kind of relationship and affection is so, so needed in friendships amongst men, but also of women. You know, there's a study done by uh, Dr. Finkel, Eli Finkel, a psychologist at Northwestern University, and this is how he described these different stages of American marriages. First, from colonial period until the 1850s, it focused on fulfilling spouses' economic and survival needs. Then the second shift that lasted from then until 18, 1965, it emphasized love, like romantic love. And from 65 till now, it's about this self-expressing marriage that became the ideal. In other words, where we are today in marriages is that the marriage has to fulfill every single desire, romantic, financial, but also friendship. I think for women, it can be easily that you don't need friends because I have my spouse. But here, what we're called to is where are those friends that you have? Same gender friends where you could love and show this kind of affection that David and Jonathan shared. But the second thing we see here in friendship is also sacrifice. Sacrifice. Remember who Jonathan was. Jonathan was the prince to the king. He was next in the succession line to be the king of Israel. And for us as readers, we just assume, oh yeah, well, we know that's not the case because David was uh, anointed in two, three, four chapters ago. So Jonathan just becomes this minor character. But imagine for the original readers who are living this out, they assumed and they knew that Jonathan was going to be king. There was no question. But in chapter 18, what happened? Jonathan sacrifices all the power and the privilege that is rightfully his, that the culture and history would say is his. And what does he do? He gives all of that up and gives, his, gives David his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt, signifying that I'm giving up my rights, my privileges, my power that is rightfully mine to you, David, because I have seen that God is at work in your life and you are going to be the next king. He could have fought it, but instead he relinquishes his power because he saw that God has chosen David. That's what makes Saul so angry because he knew what his own son did. We didn't read this, but let me read how angry Saul was when he talks to Jonathan. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? He doesn't even call him by his name, David. And to the shame of your mother's nakedness, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. You see, what Jonathan was doing was truly sacrificial, even at the cost of his own life. He willingly gives up and sacrifices his rights to David. But it's also the other way around. Because Jonathan knows that David's going to be king, you know, in that culture and time, do you know what the king had to do no matter what? You had to purge out the previous dynasty or the previous kingdom previous nation. And so guess what that meant for Jonathan? Jonathan and his children and their children would be decimated and purged. 
And so what we didn't, or what we read up to verse 17 was Jonathan pleading with David, saying, promise me that you will spare my descendants because, David, you're supposed to wipe out your enemies. And Saul has become your enemy. But spare my children. And David promises. That's a sacrifice on David's part too because they could become a threat. Jonathan can't control or know what his children would do. But later on in the story of Israel, David keeps that promise and spares Jonathan's children. There is sacrifice marked in friendship. And friendship is hard, isn't it? Friendship takes time. It comes at times when you least expect it and when it's most inconvenient. But that's why I think friendships are hard to produce and hard to create in our lives. Why? Because it takes so much time and so much sacrifice. When we live in such an individualistic culture, and it's all about me. And, and, and we have a hard time wanting to be able to give of ourselves and our time and our resources to others. But we see here friendship being marked by sacrifice. The last thing we see is not only affection, not only sacrifice, but peace. Peace. It's not something you might go, well, okay, affection, sacrifice. Yeah, I've heard these things before through Proverbs series or whatnot. But peace. Why? Well, read, read with me here in verse 42. What does Jonathan say to David as they part for the last time? Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Do you hear what Jonathan says? He says to David, go in peace. Peace? Like, how can Jonathan say that? There is so much strife between John, David and Saul. Like, this doesn't end here. David, Saul is going to continue to try to kill and pursue David. David flees into the wilderness. He hides in caves. There is no peace that he can experience in his next future kingdom because of Saul. So why would Jonathan say, go in peace? Well, it's because in the midst of strife between Saul and David, there is peace between Jonathan and David that brings the balm and the comfort and the hope and the joy and the sustenance that he needs to be able to go through the turmoil and the hardship that he will experience for years. It's because of this covenantal, committed, deep, faithful relationship that he can experience the peace that he needs in the midst of the questions that he asks, why I am but a step away from death. Peace can reign in his life. You see, that's the kind of peace and affection and sacrifice we all need in the midst of the hardships that we go through. It's the friendships that we need. Circumstances might never change. But what we see through the story is David experiences this kind of true friendship that comes to be his balm and comfort when he needs it most. In verse 8, when David pleads with Jonathan to say, you need to talk to your dad and find out whether he's going to kill me or not. David uses these words in verse 8, deal kindly with your servant. 
deal kindly, what that word is, is translated in many different ways, but it means love. It means steadfast kindness, covenant faithfulness. It's loyalty. But it's also a word that is used to describe God. It's used to describe God of his faithfulness, his steadfast loyalty to us. And it's his love for us that becomes what? A refuge. He becomes our shelter in the midst of hardship. And that's what this kind of kindness and, and, and covenant friendship looks like. It's a peace for us because it is our shelter. It is our refuge in times of hardship. Do you have that in your life? Do you have that kind of friend? I know friendship is hard. It is so hard. I know it because I have young kids who are in second grade, middle school, and high school. And some of those years can be the hardest years to be able to understand what true friendship looks like. When you're stabbed in the back, when hurtful words are said, when, when you need them most, they're not there for you. But regardless, we need friends like that. But more importantly, we do have a friend like that. We have one that is greater than Jonathan. We have one that is greater than David in Jesus. Jesus is our friend. We sing about that. And we're going to sing about that. Jesus did not only come to die and rise from the dead to vanquish our sin and to defeat evil. But he also died and rose again so that we might be called friends. The night before he died, the night before he suffered, do you know what, as he gathered his friends together, do you know what he said? Knowing that he would be betrayed, knowing that all of his friends would scatter and leave him to the wayside. Listen to what he says as he has the Lord's, the last supper with his friends. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us friends. Now, you know why that's so significant? Now, for me, the adoption, the picture of how God adopts us into his family is the most powerful story for me. It shapes me and it moves me because I am now a son of the king. But there's something powerful about being called a friend too. And here's why. I'm pointing here. My children usually sit there. My children have gone through some real disappointments and hardships in their life. Failures, whether it's academic, sports. And I'll come around them and I'll say, Stephen, Renee, Nora, I love you. It's okay. You are worthy. Just because you didn't make the team or just because you didn't get into this thing or you failed on your exam or you didn't get the, you are still beautiful. You are still amazing. You, that can never change. You are a child of God. You are baptized into his family. He sees you, and you're lovely. And you know what they say to me many times? They say, oh, as they're crying, they're like, oh, you're my dad. You have to say that, right? Which, you know, there's some truth to that. But I believe it, too. I'm their father, and I truly believe the things that I say. But for them, there's no choice in their perspective. 
We are related by blood and they are my children. And I have to say those things because I love them. But friendship is a whole nother matter. You choose your friends. You can pick and choose who you like and who you want to invest in. And that's what Jesus does for us. He's not only our elder brother, but he calls us friend because he chooses to love us. He chooses to sacrifice himself. He chooses to offer us peace and be our shelter and our refuge when we need it most because he calls us friend. And as we follow him by faith, we can, we can, God will grow us in our hearts to be a faithful friend to others, albeit imperfectly, because Jesus has been that friend to us perfectly. Go to him, but also extend that kind of love, affection, sacrifice, and peace to others. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for you call us friend when we were yet your enemies. While we continue to sin and we betray you and rebel against you persistently, you still call us friend. Lord, what a powerful image and truth that you offer us today. So Lord, help us to be transformed by that good news, but also help us to love and be a friend to others, not because of anything we receive, but Lord, because of what you have done for us. Do that good work, we ask, even as we come to the table now. In Jesus' name, amen.